social ladies. All the 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 social ladies. Now put your phones up. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kerpin. Because if you're social, then you really should be tweeting less. If you're social, then you really could be leading less. You can't have what people say it's so mysterious. Because you're social, you're a leader and you're serious. Now, Carrie Kerpin. Hi, I'm Carrie Kirpin, and welcome to another episode of All the Social Ladies. I am here today with the lovely, the fabulous Cheryl Virend, who is the founder and CEO of Freedable Inc. Now, I can't wait to ask her about this because Cheryl describes herself as a social change agent without a portfolio. In the past, she's represented Fortune 100 high-tech companies in the Bet the Business litigation proceedings with top-tier American law firms. With the adoption of her second child, however, and his subsequent diagnosis with significant food restrictions, she found her mission in launching Freedable. Freedable is a social media site all about food, but specifically made for what Cheryl calls custom eaters. And I can't wait for her to tell you all about it and how she's living her passion. She's an amazing entrepreneur, and I can't wait for you to chat with her. So welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you for that amazing introduction, I have oh, to say. you're welcome. Sitting here blushing. Oh, please. Well, you have such an amazing story. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, you have before we even start, you have to explain social change agent without a portfolio. Okay. So that really goes back to when I was a litigation attorney for a long time. Um, I really, I felt like I loved the work that I was doing. It was an amazing experience working with spectacular, top-notch litigators from around the country, uh, learning from tremendous, tremendous people. And yet, at the end of every day, I felt like there were so many things in this world that I felt really passionately about, and I wasn't putting my time towards one of them, any one of them. And so being passionate in the moment of, I love this case and I want to win for my client is great, but being passionate about, I have an overall mission that I'm pushing forward for society, it's just a completely different kettle of fish. So for the longest time, I felt kind of like a fish out of water. Whatever I was doing, I felt like... My passions were almost a dirty word, something you don't talk about in the workplace. And eventually I clued in to the idea that that meant I was in the wrong workplace. So now it's been such an extraordinary experience for me on a personal level to completely flip my life on its head. I left the law firm many years ago specifically to redesign my life with my passions at the core. And that's exactly what I've ended up doing In the beginning, I wasn't even sure what those passions were. I just knew I – my father has always been a tremendous example of using your own skills to to work for social change in whatever way is available to you and always looking for small ways you can start to make a difference because overall they add up to a big difference. So that's what I – I sort of followed that model and I said, you know, I know that I have things that I am frothing at the mouth about when I listen to the radio in the morning. Why aren't I working on one of them? So I left the law firm. It felt a bit like stepping off a cliff, going from being a Wall Street lawyer to a stay-at-home mom with one child, desperately trying to adopt a second. And in the end, following that process and trusting in it ended up bringing me my my new mission um, through the little bean who I had the tremendous, tremendous uh, just blessing of being able to adopt and bring into my family. And he sort of showed us the way. And so that's where I am today. See, I think that's so fascinating, Cheryl, that 
I, I think so many women are working in positions where they just don't feel a, a strong amount of passion. Yeah. But I, I, so many times when I talk to women, they don't know what their passion is and how to find it. So yes. did you find it just came to you through the adoption of your se- of your second child, or how did you find your passion? Okay, this is something I actually think is just so critical to yep. focus in on. And you're right, nobody talks mm-hmm. about that. Um, I'll tell you what I did. I gave myself a homework assignment for six months. This sounded – it seemed so ridiculous and crazy at the time. But for six months, I kept my nanny on. Mm-hmm. And every morning, I had a homework assignment, which was to get up out of bed and go to the bookstore. And I would wa- go to the bookstore and I would walk around. And I wasn't allowed to leave the bookstore until I found a book that I wanted to read. Like read longer than sitting on the floor in the bookstore aisle. Hmm. Buy the book. Take it home. Read it until I got bored. The second I got bored, put the book down, go back to the bookstore, because that meant I hadn't quite zeroed in on it yet. And over the course of a couple of months, what I discovered is I kept bringing home books on the American Revolutionary War. Now, I had never thought I had any interest in the American Revolutionary War. So this was quite a surprise to myself. My husband, my older child is like, gee, mommy, what are you reading? So eventually I started to figure out the reason I was so fascinated with the American Revolutionary War is it is like the best ever social movement. There's no Twitter. There's no Mm. Facebook. You get a pack of farmers who have no shoes on their feet, and you convince them that they can overturn the British Navy. Are you kidding me? Right. How do you do that? You do that through spectacular personal leadership. And reading these books that were breaking down, how did General Washington become General Washington, manage his personal brand, leverage his personal brand in order to create social change, the risks that he took to pull that off, and it worked. And to me, that was – I just sort of – I took that as a kick in the seat of the pants. You're not allowed to believe that anything is impossible in this world when that can happen. So once I understood that's the reason I kept reading about the Revolutionary War, I was – I was okay. There was a really critical piece came into place because I think one of the reasons I had always struggled as a fish out of water – is because I think that women not only have a tendency to, um, let's put it this way, I think we have a spectacular gift in that we tend to experience our passions at a much more emotive level. Yes. And yet we don't have models for going out there and just running ramshot to do whatever it takes to follow that passion. Yep. Often those passions are in areas that are traditionally discounted, yes. such as children or health or food. Um, That's one issue. And I think another is that we're not generally encouraged in a positive way to be leaders, like complete bust the doors off, I'm going to do this because it needs to be done kind of leaders. And that's that's definitely something that I had fallen short on myself. And so doing this, you know, discovering this in all of my reading about George Washington and getting more and more excited, I mean, me connecting with George Washington, how bizarre is this? But then realizing, okay, here are the things I can take from that as academic lessons. We can turn that into a roadmap for doing things to build a movement towards social change. And then I would constantly, I mean, I had for years, like every day I would, I would think of another business I do would kind of pop into my mind. But to give myself permission mm-hmm. to leave a law firm, to think of myself as a CEO, to launch a venture, to run with it, let alone run passions forward. I mean, that's really been an evolution for me, uh, but an extraordinary one. I, I'm a completely transformed human being as a result. 
Well, clearly, and I, I absolutely love the concept of going to the bookstore <laughs> and reading until you're bored and then getting something and new in order to find what resonates. Exactly. And for every, it might not be George Washington for everybody. I would assume it's not. <laughs> but the fact that you're you're experiencing and allowing yourself to kind of just have that authentic experience for what resonates and also exactly. not the thing that I love um, is that you didn't feel guilty when you got bored and you just put it away. Like you didn't feel compelled. I have to finish this. I have to finish this. Right. Because I know for women, a lot of the times when you put yourself into something, you're like, okay, I need to see this through, see this through. I love with the bookstore concept that you just went and read and read and read. And it, it really, you're right. I had to give myself permission yep. as a type A lawyer yep. to leave things undone. But That's, yeah, even that, that was an important learning for me as a human being. So it, but it definitely, I realized that what I needed was rapid, rapid fire input. And that if I forced myself to keep going through things, I was slowing down the process to where it would stop being visceral. So the other thing that I did during the time that helped keep me on track with this, and I would so strongly recommend everybody, whether they love their job or hate their job, to do this. There is this great book from the 1970s, What Color Is Your Parachute? Oh, first of all, that is Dave Kerfin, my husband's favorite book. Well, there you are. He it, made our whole staff read it. Exactly. And then everyone was like, I need to go find my passion. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's true. What Color Is Your Parachute is the best. It is. It is. And, the best. And they keep updating it, and, and it keeps being valid. And yes. I went and bought a three-year-old's watercolor um, sketch pad that is huge so that I could do all of the exercises out of that book. Mm-hmm. And doing those exercises like one a week while going to the bookstore, that combination for me was kind of magical. But still, there was a long, t- there was a long gap between, okay, so I know what I want to be doing is I want to give myself permission to try to push for social change. Yep. I had been fascinated all the way back to high school. Uh, I mean, I still remember sitting glued to NPR and listening to events in Tiananmen Square, listening to events in the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Yep. I ended up marrying someone from Estonia who grew up in the Soviet wow. Union. So, um, and I worked in, in Ukraine, in Crimea, in the very government buildings that were first overrun by the protesters wow. this year. So I had sort of been, um, I've just, it to me, it has always been like a spine on fire kind of a moment to hear about social movements taking place. And, you know, social media is just oh, my gosh, we finally have the right toolbox yes, it's to per- do that. it's absolutely perfect for it. Exactly. So, okay, so we know that you left the law firm. We know that you went and you were in search of your passion, and we know that you had you had one child, right, and you were trying to right? adopt the other. Okay, right. so then you adopt the other, and what happens? Okay, so I adopt this little bean who is amazing and beautiful. I um, love that little bean. You know, you just <laughs> and I can say he's beautiful because I had I – had, a lot to do with him being healthy, but nothing at all to do with uh, him being Oh, so, so you can be, like, kind of independent? No, completely. Like, oh, my gosh, yeah, no gorgeous way. child. No, totally gorgeous. it doesn't um, matter. You no. still think they're the most gorgeous? Okay, yeah, but this one really is. Really is. Um, when I adopted him from a family in, in the rural south, um, and they already had six children on food stamps in an area that had no jobs before the recession hit. Wow. And it was, I mean, the level of poverty that his birth siblings are being raised in is something that uh, is – many of us have the luxury of believing it doesn't exist in America. In the U.S. I and agree. the reality it does. I when agree. I first left the law firm, I actually uh, left to try to start a nonprofit to raise awareness of kids living in poverty in the U.S. So it just kind of came out as just a magical karma moment wow. when I ended up being able to help seven children living in those circumstances here in the U.S. Um, through adopting their seventh. Um, so – before he was born, I made the great mistake of learning that it was possible in adoption to breastfeed your child. 
And I say that was a mistake because as a type A attorney, of course, once I learned it was possible, I thought, oh, drat, now I have to try. And so wow. I induced lactation to breastfeed him. And it worked. And I, um, when he was born, I was already producing milk. How do you induce lactation? It's from the overall stimulation of the nipples to get... The... So it's a combination of factors. Yep. So the number one thing, and tell me how much fun this sounds, okay. is uh, for five weeks, I pumped eight to ten times a day for 20 minutes at a time. And I can see from your face that that pre, sounds like pre, a lot of fun. Yeah, pre-milk. Uh, though. That's pre- right. Pre-milk. Yes. And um, I also, there are a number of herbs that a lactation consultant would prescribe to you okay. if you birthed a child and had low milk supply. Okay. So I took those herbs. Okay. Eating oatmeal increases yes. your milk supply. Yes. I ate a lot of oatmeal. Yes. Um, and then also there's a, me- there's a medication called Domperidone. Okay. which is uh, approved in Europe okay. that um, is for digestive disorders, and it has one known side effect, okay. which is that it increases your prolactin level. Wow. So there are actually support groups in okay. Europe for women who are sitting in business meetings with no children and lactating. Wow. And so um, lactation consultants here in the U.S. often advise women to try to get a hold of that medication to increase your prolactin level, and the combination of all of those things together brought in my milk. And the amazing thing about that, um, you know, it did help a lot that I had nursed my first child. Right. But the, so I had some ductwork in place. But yep. it is possible. It doesn't work the same for everybody. Different people have different levels of success. Okay. I just was tremendously lucky. Apparently, wow. my body's not that great at making babies, but I am good at feeding them. You so were able to nurse. I was able to nurse him. I got a full load, which is really not to be anticipated. Um, I just got very lucky. And before he was born, I was dreaming about him. I was very, very connected with him even before he was born. So I go through this whole process, dyslactation, fly out to where he was going to be born two weeks before. I became very close with his birth mother before she gave birth to him. Um, my son, my older son was there uh, together with my, my mother and my stepfather and my husband, my, my son. We were all there together in the hospital um, waiting with the birth father and their youngest child while he was being born by C-section, which was just an extraordinary way to welcome into this world. And unfortunately, very, very quickly, within three or four days, he got extremely sick. And he was just screaming in pain, and he was in so much pain. He was holding himself stiffly enough to actually stand up on his own feet at four days old in the hotel sink while we were trying to give him a bath. And that was really, it was just... That's the pain. It was devastating. Yeah, yes. And it took a long, a long slog before we got to a proper diagnosis. And going through that slog very much tracked the experiences of other moms who end up having a child who has one sort of food-triggered ailment or another, and adults who go through that. There tends to be very little um, knowledge among the general pediatric society or the or the general um, general practitioners groups. Um, and so very often the first reaction is there must be something wrong with you or something that you're doing wrong or right. you're making it up right. or all of this. Right. So um, my pediatrician told me that there must be something wrong with my milk. And if I didn't switch to formula, she was going to call social services. And Oh, my I, goodness. Exactly. And I had gone – I had done my homework. Right. And I you knew there's no it's... difference in the right. chemical composition of, of your course. milk if you induce, et cetera. Right. So um, – so I, I had to pull out my old litigator skills, find somebody to document and cover my backside. And I still had a screaming child on my hands. So I found my way to a, to a children's hospital in the Bronx, Montefiore Children's Hospital, yes. where a terrific pediatric GI took one look and said, this is classic signs of food allergies, food intolerances. Strip the top eight allergens out of your diet and see if this kid gets healthy. So I did. And he stopped screaming. And he started growing. So it was through changing your diet. 
So I change yes. my diet. I take out gluten, dairy, egg, soy, tree nuts, peanuts, shellfish. In his case, also corn and chocolate, based okay. on what we knew of his family history. And uh, and he stopped screaming. And it was it was an amazing experience. Now, at the same time uh, that he stopped screaming, suddenly I lost a bunch of health ailments that I had carried around for decades that no one had ever been able to explain. Wow. So I stopped having asthma. I stopped having narcolepsy. I lost 35 pounds in nine months, even though I had not birthed this child. Right. Um, oh, you lost was, the baby weight. I yeah, lost, exactly. You lost the baby weight without the It was baby, like right? we traded. So I it's gave amazing. him weight. And amazing. He took That's away my amazing. Weight. It was amazing. It was, such, it was such a wake up moment. And then we were able to sort of turn the knowledge that I was coming across as I researched things for him into information that helped us get my older son healthy. He'd had chronic stomach pains. He had an increasing number of... Um, cognitive impacts going on that really looked like a brain tumor. Uh, like he suddenly, this high IQ kid, could not finish sentences, uh, could not find words, uh, was having major personality altering tantrums. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this we were able to eventually get to diagnosis and understand what's happening for each of us. So for me, as I was going through this, uh, being the person that I had been all the way back since high school of always wanting to find my place to make a big change in the world. Right. I just kept thinking, you know, there have been so many pieces of luck that went into getting myself healthy and my kids healthy. And it just shouldn't be this hard right. to take care of our bodies. And there had to be others like you. Exactly. There had to be. And I would go to the grocery store and I would end up having very long trips to the grocery store yes. because not only was I reading every label, yes. I was picking up sobbing people in the gluten-free aisle you bet. and giving them my own personal tour of brands to avoid and brands yes. to go with. And eventually I was like, okay, there's got to be a more efficient way than hanging yeah. out at Whole Foods, yeah. which is a great store, yeah. but not how you make social change. Right. So then I started to think about, you know, what are the things that could be done differently just by using technology to break down those hurdles? So why are we all reading labels if we can plug in our diet restrictions and have products suggested? Why are we all, you know, choosing our food based on food porn on Pinterest when I have to look at the, oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. And I open it up. Oh, can't, can't eat that. Can't eat it. Open the next one. Oh, can't eat that. Wouldn't it be more enjoyable, efficient, et cetera, if I could simply say, here's what I can eat, and then be told, here's the food born that works for you. So just sort of identifying those logistical and informational things that are missing um, and then realizing the social change piece of it. What are the social hurdles that stop each of us from doing from following the diets that works best for our diet, for our body. Number one, how do we find that information? Right. Number two, how do we talk to Aunt Nellie about what our diet needs are? Number three, how do we get over the fact that every time we do go and look at that food porn, we have to relive the loss over and over and over again? And how do we find other people like us and get to where we feel confident and comfortable talking about, you know— it's, you know, to, to put it bluntly, talking about your poop at the dining room table, right, right. you know, talking about what your body's needs are. Right. And so then recognizing there are so many segments of our population that are really hurting, like food allergy communities, celiac disease communities, multiple sclerosis, cancer. There are so many health issues that have food triggers that make them worse. And each one of those individuals is sort of managing that problem on their own. They're trying to explain it to everybody else on their own. They're trying to find the things that work on their own. And yet, if you look at the overall statistics, it's like one in three American households is modifying their diet based on someone's food restrictions. One in three is a huge number. So it is just nonsensical 
that each one of those individuals would experience that as being all on their own. It just doesn't make sense. And especially, I think, another thing when you said, you know, how can you talk to Aunt Nellie and kind of the mo- the mourning yeah. of that food porn is not for you, right, this piece of food porn. It, the, the groceries, many, many grocery stores are not built to cater to people like you or like me or anyone with right. those one in three. Right. Right. They're not built to do that. So it's like you're working against so many different odds. So what, it, what an amazing kind of bringing together and an moment for you to look at your ability to impact social change with freedom. This is how I assume Freedable came to be. Exactly. This okay. is how Freedable came to be. And and there's another piece to it that is also, I think, very powerful, which is that one of the things that gets in our way is that there just aren't that many products that work for a given combination. Yep. So it's understanding what products are out there. And it's also just plain having products. But, you know, the food industry is kind of panic themselves because yes. they've got like this Mack truck barreling down the highway. Yes. How do you market to consumers that diffused? Yes. So basically the idea with Freedable was to create a new social media platform based that's based on a framework of an ingredient-based database. So it's all based on the idea that food is not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Everything about the way that Freedable works is, comes from that premise. And so what we can do is we can help people who have eating restrictions communicate their needs to each other, to a broader social sphere, oh, and to the food brands. Here's what we can eat. It's nice that you took out gluten, but when you replaced it with soy protein, here's the size of the market you left on the table. So, you know, we don't have to work against them. We can make them our allies. And the thing that's been so spectacularly exciting about building Freedable has been that, you know, there's a real tendency, I think, right now to see food brands as being part of the problem. And to some extent, there are, obviously there are some practices of some food brands that are definitely part of the problem. Yes. But there are so many good brands out there that are trying to figure out how to be part of the solution. And I have been finding connecting with them, not only have they been supportive of what I'm doing, but right from our very first launch, we have been able, when we do social media campaigns, they're all about empowerment. These brands have just joined me truly as partners in promoting it. So – like our last campaign, I, I went in with 1,700 Twitter followers, and I had a tweet reach of 570,000 wow. Twitter accounts. Wow. And that's because the brands see they want this to change too. Right. And it's individual human beings who are community managers for each of these brands. Right. And they feel just as helpless about all the rest, yep. all of this as the yep. rest of us do. And when a major social shift happens like this, when there's a major change, brands need to exactly. adapt just as just as much as humans do, right? All right. of us, all of us need to adapt to this change. And when you say that stat of one in three, like that's really what's out there. That's the reality yeah. right now. And so brands do. I mean, they just have to catch up. It's you know they've been working in a very long time in a very specific type of way. That's right. And for the brands, they have a long product development cycle, mm-hmm. so they're they have the same problem that that the overall cultural just just, they do. just as you're saying, how are they supposed to magically know what are the common combinations of restrictions when our family doctors don't? Correct. It's really it we we need to help them to help us. And that's been what so my approach with building Freedable, both in architecting the system and in how we do our outreach, et cetera, it's really let's look at this as an ecosphere. Yep. And the, I, it's really – it's a big tent ecosphere. So let's focus on what are the needs of each of the different groups within this ecosphere. Mm-hmm. The bloggers play an incredibly important role you here. Bet. 
and they have special specific needs. Yep. The brands play a big role and they have specific needs. Yep. And obviously custom eaters do. Nonprofits such as the American Diabetes Association or FAIR, the Food Allergy Research and Education yep. Organization, these folks have spe- have specific needs and roles to play in this community too. So it's been really, you know, it's, it's sort of social media um, on its head in a way. Social media, if you look at the big platforms, right, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, the ones where we all are. Yes. You know, they really are... I need to work for everybody, appeal to everybody, be be something that works for any, any industry, Correct. any role in that industry. Correct. And my feeling is, okay, that's spectacular, and that has such an important place. Um, I think that we also need a separate kind of social media, which is, okay, well, now I have a specific social problem that I'm trying to solve. Yes. There's this industry that is broken, and it's breaking worse and worse each day, mm-hmm. um, and that is the the overall industry around food and health. And we need some some spe- specialized tool sets to go in and fix those problems. But if we take an approach of looking at the whole vertical sector yep. that each of us touches three times a day, yep. then we can get to really using this tool sets in a different way. It's more specialized, but in a way that has perhaps a big, at least as big an impact. For sure. I think I think you're absolutely right about the larger networks being very broad in, mm. in space. And I think there's a definite need for these kind of niche spots where people know they can go somewhere where they're they're right. talking to others like them. How do you how do you get people there? How you're so you're building this business. You have this idea, you have this passion. You know, you know that you want to create this social network for this. How do you get them to come to you? Well, you know, that's the struggle of any startup. Yep. Um the first step was I needed a, a place for people to come to. Yep. Um, so I actually I started teaching myself to use open source software. Amazing. Built the prototype myself. You um, did? Yes. Wow. Um, you are type so. A. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. Um, see no challenge left unturned. Um, <laughs> and I uh, – so I, so I built the brand myself. The thing that's been amazing about that is yep. um, going out – I go to conferences and, and just – do face-to-face networking with people. Yes. And um, it's just – it's such an extraordinary experience. Um, it, it, it ends up giving me tremendous feedback. I've done two major redesigns of the site based on that kinds of feedback. It also – it teaches me so much about what the actual needs are out there. So I'm always thinking about, oh, okay, wait. Now that's a whole diet group I didn't know about in order to meet their needs as well. I may t- need to make this tweak. So it's been incredibly powerful. As far as actually bringing people to the site mm-hmm. – um, a lot of it is is word of mouth. Um, I focused initially in building the site on making sure I understand the needs of our influencers, the bloggers and the food brands in particular, and also a couple of nonprofits that I'm working with now as, as well. And really making sure I understand their needs allows this to be a platform that offers them something even before we have a whole lot of eyeballs there to look at it. So already we have over 130 specialty food bloggers and 50 oh, food so brands. Great. That's and so great. So that right there gives you the reach that's necessary exactly. to bring people and, back and over I think, to the site. I think the big thing is, um, as I've approached social, I think there's such a tendency um, to sort of think of your task as as you alone have to do it. Right. That, you know, this is my brand. I have to be the one to figure out how to make this work. Right. right. And what I learned very, very early on is that my – and this was, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, this is such a huge social learning for me. I think – I think of it in in being as a woman, it was a big learning that my passions are legit, not only allowed at the table, they're not only legitimate, but they have a role to play in this world. They it's it's a gift not only because it, it's my lifeblood, but right. 
there are other people who experience it as a gift if you're willing to stand up and fight like hell for your passion if it turns out that your passion is something that benefits them as well. And so really thinking about when I put together um, I put together campaigns that are about, all right, we're heading into a holiday when I know custom eaters are going to be feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. They're going to be feeling like there's yes. a spotlight on their diets. Yes. Well, that's a whole lot of people who need the types of information that I'm starting to pull together here on Freedable, or rather that my bloggers are pulling together here on Freedable. The recipes in a community cookbook where you can search their 50 different diet restrictions or blog posts on every different kind of diet issue. There are people who really need that content. And there's a whole lot of people who feel frustrated about food allergies or about diabetes or whatever because they feel powerless. Yep. So here's this moment in time, which is Thanksgiving or it's Fourth of July or it's Easter, where we can create a an opportunity of uh, lots of what I like to call small on-ramps easy things that people can do to connect themselves to an issue and change their identity from someone on the outside of the issue to someone who is doing things to help that issue. Mm. And that is the most extraordinary thing to do in terms of empowering people in that way. It helps them it, – it gives them a positive experience within their own identity. So, um, for instance, with our Easter campaign, yes. we had an eggless Easter pin board. So what we did was we invited everybody in the community to sell you – know, whether you whether your child has an egg allergy or not, if you love, love decorating Easter eggs, celebrate your love of decorating Easter eggs with your child by pinning up ideas for how you could celebrate Easter without decorating, decorating eggs as a way to support the families for whom that's not an option because of an egg allergy. So love instead it. of it being – so I would never approach, the, approach that as, you know, don't decorate Easter eggs for Christmas because not every kid can, but rather – do what you love, enjoy, take advantage of, celebrate the foods that you can eat, and celebrate them by helping the people who can't eat those foods. I love it. So let me give you little easy ways to do that. So when you execute that, do you do that through a Pinterest or do you do that through your own site or both? Is it how do you how do you balance that? So this is the how do you build a small yes. business brand yep. piece, yep. right? Yeah. So my approach, um, and I you know, folks want to put up a comment with feedback on new suggestions. I'm eager to hear it. Yes. Um, but my approach has been it's a hybrid. So I'm trying to build a new social platform, but I want to make sure that I meet people where they are. Yes. And that's not just about marketing. That's also, to me, it's a little bit of a sign of respect. Yep. Um, you have a way you like doing things. Yep. I'm not going to tell you you have to change that immediately yep. to be part of this movement. Yep. So I really do a hybrid. So I'll try to do with each campaign. They'll usually last a couple of weeks. And I try to do some events that are specifically unfreedable, such as we always ask people to put up relevant recipes, put up relevant blog posts. So that's something that's using the core freedable framework. But then I'll also have a Twitter party or I'll also have um, I have promotional partners who've been just these amazing brands have come forward and given this tremendous support. So I will produce graphics for to be used on Twitter, and I'll produce tweets to be used on Twitter, and then they help they they sign on as partners, and they help to promote that content around. And for them, for the community managers, you know, it helps them to deal with 
I have to come up with a certain amount of content every day. How do I do that? Absolutely. So it's really, I use a hybrid approach. I give you the thumbs up on the hybrid. Okay, good. I like that. (laughs) Somebody who built their business pretty much entirely through social and then has a business that's off of just being on the social networks. Exactly. Um, Yes, it's always a hybrid. And I I think that that's great. It sounds sounds great. Talk to me a little bit, Cheryl, about about custom, the concept of a custom eater versus food allergies. I know we were talking a little bit in the studio before about that it's not just the food allergy uh, community. Can you talk to me a little bit about the concept of a custom eater? Absolutely. So I came to this concept for a a couple of reasons. I mean, my experience of getting a diagnosis Mm -hmm. for my family, my my, my little guy, he's only got 15 foods that he can eat. If you do a skin prick test on his back, he will react to every single food you put on his back, unless it's one of those 15. If you give him a blood test, which is, you know, the gold standard allergy test, he will show up as having zero Zero reactions. That's like the the Alcat. Is that um, allergy? It's, t- the, it's like that. It's doing a test for IgE. Yep. Mediated allergies. He has no IgE mediated allergies. <gasps> but if he eats foods that are off of his list, then uh, like his urine will burn his skin for fifteen days. Oh. Um, he will go into a manic spin for a week. He will oh. have his stomach will be ripped up for ten days. Um, so and and he can't grow and he can't right. think and he right. can't socialize. Right. So it's. Um, it's there are very real consequences for his diet, and yet it doesn't fall under one of those you know wonderful. We've got a blood test, therefore it exists yes. kind of frameworks. My older son and myself, we have a histamine intolerance. Who's ever heard of a histamine intolerance? Right. There is no blood test for a histamine okay. intolerance. Um, my older son cannot function at school if he has high histamine foods. So obviously, again, there are serious impacts to it that as mom, it's my job to help manage. And yet there is no blood test and it is not food allergy, which is sort of where much of the conversation is right now. And, you know, my niece um, has a number of uh, very specific uh, diet issues uh, that are, again, very specific, um, significant health impacts. So if you look at the whole range of it, what I realized is, as we were going through the diagnostic process and our doctors were sort of trying on one diagnosis after another and giving yes. us one bucket of diet restrictions after another, uh, I realized there were a, a lot more in common from bucket to bucket than there were differences. Mm. So what is the actual manifestation going to be? Yep, that's a difference. And how sensitive is this to cross-contact? Yep, that's a difference. Mm. And which foods am I managing? That's a difference. But how do I construct a recipe with my hands tied behind my back? That's pretty similar. How do I talk to grandparents about what are the, uh, how important is it on the diet? That's a similarity. How do I deal with what do I do at, at school? How do I explain to other moms as to why it's not so cool to bring cupcakes into class every right. day? You know, these are things that are the same no matter what the commonality is behind, the reason is behind it. And so that's when I started to think, you know, we need to be thinking in that broader umbrella. Yes. Because right now there are these micro-communities out there that are focused around food allergy or focused around celiac disease or focused around cancer. And what happens is just because you get one food-triggered health issue, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card That's for the right. others. That's right. There's very often there's an overlap. Right. And so for the person who's new to figuring this out, you're left with having no idea where to go. So you invest in one niche community – you figure out who there knows what they're talking about and who is just spouting off. You figure out how the site works. You create your your profile. You start to form some relationships. And then you realize, oh, actually, 
that wasn't my issue. Right. So now you back out and you go find another community. You right. go through the same routine. And it, it ends up, um, there's an obvious inefficiency to that. And it means that there's a lot of people at the beginning of the funnel who aren't finding their way to information that could have a really life-changing impact for them. Right. And then meanwhile, by allowing ourselves to, to stick with an identity that is just about, you know, me and people like me who have histamine intolerance, I experience that as I'm pretty alone in this world. Right. Right. But if I'm one in three American households, I'm not so alone. The social experience is completely different. Well, that's the whole concept of connecting them. It's exactly, exactly. what you're doing. Exactly. I love it. So that's why I, I kind of came to this term of custom eater because one of the things I realized is for me personally, I needed a brand that was about positivity and empowerment. Yes. And, you know, it's a custom diet. Whatever right. the reason behind it is, including I just feel better when I don't eat bagels. You know, right. that's a diet. Right. And I really think, you know, none of us, unfortunately, none of us comes with a neon sign over our head that says what food's going to work for us. Right. And as long as my immunologist, who is an MD, PhD, and probably the smartest woman I've ever met, can't tell me what's going on in my little three-year-old's body right. and what food to try to introduce to him next, that's very humbling to me. It is. And it says to me, we need to take a step back from the assumptions that we have about our differences. And we can gain so much more through our through working together. And I think it's it's another piece of this sort of the movement building piece. I mean, it's something that I talk about a lot with food allergy moms is, you know, food allergy moms have I, I have so much respect for food allergy moms. If your child could could go into anaphylactic shock simply by having a crumb of my child's cupcake. It takes so much courage to send your child to school like that every day. Yes. And for that mom, in order to have safety for her child, if she only focuses on um, building coalitions with, you know, there's one in 12 school-aged children who has a life-threatening food allergy. If she builds that coalition with the other mom in her kid's class of 24 kids, Mm -hmm. well, now you've got two moms against 22 moms trying to come up with policies that are going to work. And that feels very difficult. I'm really sorry, but or um, uh, I'd like to protect my child. Will you help me protect my child? But now if she finds the one in 24 kids in the class who has celiac disease, finds that mom, well, the, child, the, the mom whose child has celiac disease and their stomach is going to be ripped up by having a single molecule of gluten, they're going to understand the food allergy mom a whole lot better yep. than the average mom. Yep. And the one who's going to understand that child best is going to be the one who's is the one with diabetes. And then the mom whose child has obesity issues. And the mom whose child, and you put all of those moms together and now you're at 6 or 8 out of 24. Yeah. That's a very different dynamic. It's a different story. It's, it's a, a different, different story. story. Exactly. And I I just love how your site also appeals to the custom eater and not just the the child with or the parent of the child with food allergies. I think it's a great it's a great thing because it, it, we Thank all you. we all in our own ways are custom eaters. Anyone who exactly. is focused on their health at all is is a custom eater, right? Exactly. Because you're eating what's right for you. Okay. So last big question for you. Uh-oh. You put it all on the line. You've become an entrepreneur. You, you left this kind of big job. You're doing this. You're growing it. It's exciting. What, do you ever feel like the challenges are too great? Do you ever get to – I'm looking for – advice you'll give to other women entrepreneurs. We all are out there. We're all like, oh, the challenges. It's making me crazy. I'd love to know you as, as such a strong voice in, in our our group of women entrepreneurs. I'd love, well, I'd love to know. You really are. Very, very passionate. So strong. I, I want to know your advice. Okay. So I'm hoping my husband's not listening. Okay. Because he knows the, the real truth. Okay. I mean, about every other day, 
About every other day, I wake up and I think, okay, this sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. I think that I can build a social media platform. I think that I can build a social movement, that I can change this world. That sounds crazy. And everything I was taught as a little girl growing up, um, I mean, I'm very fortunate that my mother has a PhD in chemistry, and she was out there changing the world in her own way. I watched that from my kitchen table. Yeah. Um, but still, the idea that as a as a woman, you know, a forty one year old woman with two kids living in the burbs can create a social media platform. What? Um, and when I do, um, I tend to. Uh, there's a couple of things I fall back on. Number one is lists. When I'm feeling empowered and like I know what I'm doing, and yeah, this is going to work. Those are the times I make my lists. I love. And this. when I'm feeling like. Uh, this sounds kind of crazy. That's the time to simply turn to a list and execute. Um, the reason I said I hope my husband's not listening is because, really, I have to give him a lot of credit here. Yeah. Because when I start to feel like this sounds crazy, he looks at me and he says, it's time to go to a meetup. It's time to go to a networking event. Because he knows about me that when I get out and start talking to people about Freedable, I feel so strongly that we need to make this change yep. and that we'll be better as a society when we come to think about food differently, that it takes me over and it changes me mm. back into the person who's ready to sit down at the desk and build a new section of the site or come up with a new campaign or reach out to a new nonprofit or whatever. So that's lists is, I think, my I love that. Key. So it sounds like a supportive network, right? So for Absolutely. you, it's your husband. So somebody who really believes in you. And then when yes. you're feeling uh, not – when you're feeling your best, write things down. And yes. when you're not feeling your best, follow that playlist, right? Exactly. Follow, follow that exact Exactly. And way. and there are times that I actually, I will use the process of writing the list yes. to get my mind back into it. Yes. So like if I've been traveling for a little while yes. and now I have to get back to it, I actually just, even though I've already got the list, I just start the brainstorm over again. Um, because going through the process of brainstorming it is what kicks my brain into gear of being able to execute it. And you go through that also, when you're not feeling as confident too, you do do oh, that? Oh, yeah. You do. Wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Lists. I think lists are the key. Lists are the key. I love it. But I think the other thing is giving yourself permission to believe in yourself. Yep. And that is just the we're, hardest thing. We're n- I, it's, I don't know. We're not taught it. We have to it's, – it's something that we have to learn. It's a learned skill. And I think one of the things that we need to do is part of how we teach ourselves that is that we, we, we give ourselves permission to reject the external voice, yes. which tells us that it is arrogant or inappropriate or um, somehow, quote unquote, bad for us to have confidence. Yes. And to, to go out into I, – I really – I had to teach myself to walk into a room and say, yes, my name is Cheryl Virant and here's what I think I can do in this world. And giving myself permission to reject the voice that told yep. me not to say that is the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. You bet. The, the most empowering. Well, Cheryl Virand, I think you're going to do an awful, awful lot in this world. And I encourage all of you to check out Freedable.com. We are so excited to check it out. And and I certainly am going there right after this. (laughs) Thank you. So thank you. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com.